Hear the word of God from Acts chapters 11 and 13. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people who were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And now chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. I love the Bible for many reasons. One of them being there's so many awesome names for children. Agabus. I don't know why I haven't thought of that one yet. Gina. Agabus. You're welcome. Those of you in the future, you name your child Agabus. Awesome name. You know, good morning, everyone. Today's sermon and the next couple of weeks is going to be different from our usual kind of sermon series that we do here at Waypoint Church. Uh, typically, we go through a book of the Bible. So typically, we'll go through like the whole book of Ephesians or the, the book of John or something. We often go from New Testament to Old Testament to New Testament to Old Testament back and forth. And so for this, but this kind of series of transition before um, Labor Day, we're actually going to do a, a series of sermons based on kind of the, the, the elements that make up Waypoint Church. And then we'll go back after Labor Day into our, back into a book. So after Labor Day, we're going to start a series on the book of Psalms. And we're going to be in that whole book all the way up to Christmas. And so that's going to be an exciting time. I'm, I'm so excited about diving into the book of Psalms with all of you. But till then, we're actually going to do, last week we spoke about every member being a missionary. One of our major statements here at Waypoint Church. Today we're going to look into the concept of community. With our concept of community, guys, I want to share with you a quote by Tim Keller. He says this, we often think of community as simply one more thing we have to follow in the rules of behavior. Okay, I have to read my Bible, pray, stay pure, and I need to go to fellowship. 
But community is best understood as the way we are to do all that Christ told us to do in the world. Community is more than just a result of preaching of the gospel. It is itself a declaration and expression of the gospel. It is a demonstration of the good news of freedom in Christ through the evident display of our transformed character and our life together. It is itself part of the good news. For the good news is this. This is what Christ has won for you on the cross. A new life together with the people of God. Once you were alienated from others, but now you have been brought near. I love that definition. I love what Tim Keller says here about community. This idea of community is something that I think over and over again churches have been talking about. Um, As a matter of fact, neighborhoods have been talking about. There's Facebook groups all about community. Because I think there's something missing in our Western individualized culture right? We've become very isolated. We've got to the point where back in the day, a long time ago, people would grow up and live and stay and have kids all where their family is. You didn't really leave the city that you were born in. And your family was all together. But now, we actually, I think a study recently showed that over 70% of the residents in the triangle are actually not from the triangle. And so in our Western culture, we've kind of lost community. And so there's all these different ways people are trying to develop community. I'm part of a group on Facebook called uh, SODU, right? South Durham Parents Posse. That's true, I'm part of that group. They they offer good advice on them, just saying, you know, where to take your kids for play dates and playground, I'm just saying. But it's really, it's just a little group that you're a part of because we are often wrestling and looking for community, and churches talk about it often, but what does true community look like? And at Waypoint Church, here in this place, what do we mean when we talk about community? What do we talk, what, what, what's distinctive about it? Towards that end, guys, I, I want us to look at a specific church in the book of Acts, and it's a church at Antioch. Probably my favorite church of all time, other than this one, of course, but other than this one, it's my favorite church of all time. The church in Antioch was the very first place that the followers of Jesus were called Christians. I mean, at first, everybody thought the followers of Jesus was just a sect of Judaism. But something about the church in Antioch made them stand out in such a way that no longer could they just be a small sect of Judaism. They were actually called something different. They were called Christians. Now, I heard historically some people say that that was actually a mocking term. Who do you think you are? Little Christ. But whatever the, the root of that term came from, they were something different about them. The way they lived out their faith was different from everybody else. There's so much to glean from this text that we read, and we will get into all of this. But before we do, I want to let you know something that we're seeing from the church of Antioch. Is what we're seeing is descriptive of the church. It isn't perfect, and it's not prescriptive of, for all churches at all times. There are some great practices that the Church of Antioch did that we wish to emulate and truths that we will glean that are for all churches. But this passage alone doesn't make it prescriptive. Let me, do you guys get, does that make sense at all? What we're seeing is these are descriptive elements of this church, but it's not prescriptive. Does that make sense? Let me, let me help you out here. If you can, one can look at one person in the Bible and think, oh, that person is somebody esteemed in the Bible. And then you can say, let me just do whatever that person did right? But that wouldn't be a correct way to read and interpret the Bible. You can look at John the Baptist and say, oh, so he wore camel hair and ate locusts and honey. I'm supposed to wear camel hair and eat locusts and honey. No, you can if you want to. That's completely up to you. I will not judge you. A little bit. But, but what you can say is you can look elsewhere in the Bible and say the Bible is commanding me to live a life that testifies about Jesus like John the Baptist did. 
Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? There are elements that are descriptive in the Bible, but it's not prescriptive. Does that work so far? Are we, are we, are we understanding that so far? So these are six elements that I want us to get out of the church in Antioch that are descriptive of the church in Antioch, and some of it is prescriptive. But I want us to understand is not just because it's about the church of Antioch makes it prescriptive. You guys with me so far? See, guys, I want, I want to teach you guys how to not only hear a sermon, but I want to teach you guys how to study the Bible. I want you to know how to interpret. Because let me just be honest with you guys. If I ever teach and preach something wrong here, that is absolutely 100% on me. And I will be judged, and God will confront me about that. But can I tell you this? If you believe everything I say without taking it back to the Word, that's on you. Can I say that again for you guys real quick? So please, challenge everything you hear me say against the Word of God. Do not be like, oh, Lawrence knows more than me. Okay, I probably don't. Everything you hear, please always take it back to the Word. Right? Because I want, I want you to learn how to read and interpret and glean from the Word of God. Six elements to this committee, six attributes of this committee that I want us to see and I want us to grab a hold of for ourselves here. Okay? So there's six of them. Um, they're going to be long, so I'm going to bear with me. I'll try not to talk too fast, although that's a tendency of mine. What I loved last week was last week Michael Thompson shared about Taras, and finally I felt like somebody was speaking that made me sound like I speak slowly. <laughs> I was so happy about that. I just said, yes! If you always speak before me, then no one will think I speak fast. Perfect. I don't have that today. Ugh. The first element of this community is that they came together from shared common experience, shared trauma, and shared purpose. Let me explain. Now, most common communities in our culture come from shared common experience, right? The country club, the soccer parents, the CrossFit gym, the child play groups, and such and such. These are communities that come from a shared common experience. They get together because they like the same things, live in the same common areas, or sh kind of share the same state of life. Yet other groups come together and often deeper when they share a shared trauma. There's support groups that exist, communities that have escaped war-torn areas together and such. For example, do you guys remember the Thai soccer team that was trapped in the, in the caves for a while? I can only imagine the connection that they now feel. They experience this trauma together. They experience this, something that nobody else could really understand. They, they have a shared appreciation for those who rescued them. Well, in chapter 11, we see believers being scattered because of persecution. We read this lightly sometimes, because, but literally, the believers were running away from friends, family, and all they've ever known of home because they were afraid for their lives. They came to Antioch. In Antioch, they formed a community, a church. So there was this shared trauma, this shared idea of coming together. They started preaching to the Jew and then in, to the Gentiles. And in verse 21, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They started a community of shared common trauma, of being persecuted, but it led to so much more. A deeper community based on top of the shared common experience and on top of the shared common trauma, they also had a shared common mission, a calling. You see, I said earlier that common experience leads to community, and then shared common trauma leads to often deeper still, but then shared common mission leads to even deeper still than that. Imagine the closeness of soldiers in the field. They have a shared common experience. The, the ones who have been together will also share common trauma, and they all share the same common mission. A few years back, I saw a, a series on HBO called um, um, Band of Brothers. Anybody ever seen the Band of Brothers? That's it? Wow. 
That was actually a really good series. You guys should watch it. <laughs> um, it was about um, uh, World War II, and it was this incredibly moving series, and what made it so moving was these relationships and the closeness of these group of, this community of soldiers who were together and their community. And what struck me more so is they might have fought amongst themselves or had disagreements, but it had to be worked through because they knew the mission that they faced was bigger than even their own disagreements. They shared a same common experience. They were all soldiers together. They shared the same trauma. They also experienced loss together. And they also shared the same common mission together. Our church community might on the outside might not look like it shares all these elements. I mean, we are a diverse group of people here. We don't all live in the same neighborhood. We aren't all in the same stage of life. We aren't all the same color. We're all different. From the outside, it doesn't look like we have shared trauma, and often the church doesn't show itself to have the same purpose or mission. But I want you to hear this very well today, my people. We here together have the same common experience, our same common trauma, and our same common mission found in the reality and the truth of the gospel. Because here's our truth. While we, at one point, we were all enemies of God, lost and separate from him separate from the one who made us, separate from the one who calls us and gives us purpose. Our shared trauma is that we were once dead, but praise be to God, Jesus rescued us by living the perfect life, dying in our place, conquering death and ascending into heaven. Our common mission is to tell others about the good news. And so in turn, we are part of the transforming work of Jesus. Guys, I want you to get this. There's so many elements of a community that we here at Waypoint Church need to understand that the people there shared common trauma, common experience, and common purpose. Guys, we are here. The only entryway that we had into this community is not a membership fee. It was not having a certain GPA. It was not looking a certain way or acting a certain way or being good enough at all. There is nothing that qualified you to be a part of this common community. It was only the shared, trauma shared experience of Jesus Christ. Do you guys hear that? For those of you who don't need, know Jesus, guys, but there's something inside of you that craves to know God, and something inside of you that craves for community, I want you to know this. You don't have to look and act like a Christian or look and act perfect before you can experience this. The entry fee for you to be a part of this community was the fact that you know that you are a sinner. You know that there's something lacking in your heart. The way I say it, and you guys have heard me, if the people keep in track, this is me saying the human condition again. I believe the human condition here at Waypoint Church is that we all crave to be known. We all desire to be loved. And we all want purpose. And here's the thing that in that Jesus is the only way, the gospel is the only way that we can be fully known for all our sin, for all our issues, for all the darkness and depth of our messed upness that we have, yet we can still be utterly loved. Because in our knowing, we know that as we know ourselves, we know we're sinful, but we know that we also crave justice, that there is a right and a wrong. And so in this knowing, we, if we know ourselves, we know that we deserve judgment because we crave justice and this idea of craving judgment that we know that we don't deserve to be loved and then Jesus comes and says, I know you, I love you, and I call you to the same common purpose. This community we are part of is only possible through the gospel. Do you hear that? 
This community that the Church of Antioch was a part of was only possible at the depth of their community, the effectiveness of the community was only possible because of the gospel, because they knew they shared the same common entry fee, they shared the same common drama, that they were lost and broken without Jesus, and because of him, they now get to be together. He did a work of reconciliation between God and Manning and man and man. It empowers us to stay together, even though we're all sinners who mess up often. Our community also shows others the power of the gospel. Long time ago when, well, not a long time ago, I guess, but like five, six years ago, people, I started having this birth in my heart for this church called Waypoint Church. And people would often ask me, you know, they would say, you know, why do you want to plant a church? And I was like, oh, it's a cool thing to do. That's what everybody's doing. That's not what I said. Growing up in the South, um, being a minority in the South, I experienced something. And I looked around, and we were actually, a group of us were over in children's ministry talking about this, our experience being minorities in the South. And one of the things that we experienced was that this idea of the gospel being so powerful, right, didn't seem, like people would talk about it, preach about it, but didn't seem to be true in churches in the South. It seemed like the, the churches in the South were showing a, show, would, would be powerful, would show a gospel powerful enough to only bring people who already shared a common experience together, but nothing else. Right? The people who already live in the wealthy communities can come together. The people who are from the same color groups or ethnic groups can come together. But we never showed a gospel that was strong enough to bring people who are different together. Right? And so I remember people coming up to me and asking me, why do you want to plant a church? And I said, honestly, because I want to show the gospel to be as powerful as it really is. And show the, gospel, show the gospel, show a church that says, hey, the gospel is so strong that people who don't look alike, people who are from the same culture, people from different nations, people who speak different languages, people from different age groups, they can all come together because the gospel is that powerful. Guys, what we show in our community is we show a gospel as powerful as it really is. And we have the opportunity to do that. Leads to my second element of this community is that it was a radically diverse community. This church in Antioch was radically diverse. And I say radically diverse because for that day and age, their diversity stood out greatly. Acts 13. Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Let me tell you a little bit. You just read those names. You don't really understand the diversity there. But let me explain it to you. Barnabas was a Hellenistic Jew. He's actually quite well known. He's found in Acts chapter 4. His name was Joseph, and he was a Levite from Cyprus. The apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, which I also think Barnabas is a cool name too. But like if you go short and go in Barney, then there's like that purple thing that you, you don't want. I don't know. Sorry. Being from Cyprus... He was a Hellenistic Jew, which meant his principal language was Greek, and he was immersed in Greek culture. So he was a Jew, but he was a Hellenistic Jew, Jew that grew up in another country and spoke Greek. Simeon. Now, because there was other men probably named Simeon, they distinguished him by calling him by a Latin name, Niger, which means black. Now, to call somebody black in a location and place where most everybody had darker skin tone probably means he had a very dark complexion. So most likely, Niger was the man most likely from Africa. Now, I love this. So here's Simeon, and he was a black man. So we have a Jew living in a Hellenistic Jew in a Greek outside the country. Then we have somebody from Africa. The third person listed on the leadership council of Antioch is Lucius of Cyrene. Once again, Lucius was a common name in the Roman world, so they added where he was from in order to distinguish him. He was from Cyrene. 
This is a place in North Africa close to where Libya is today. Before the Arab invasion of North Africa in the 600s, though, almost all the inhabitants would be from African descent. So another African descent leader. Next, we read about a Menean. Uh, he says he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Literally, this means that he shared the same wet nurse probably as Herod. Now, who was Herod? Anybody know? He was what? A hated king. I mean, he was a king, which makes him royalty, makes him a big deal anyway. But he wasn't just king. He was the person who had John the Baptist beheaded. He was, this guy was a guy who grew up with this guy. So he was royalty. He was Jewish royalty. He was high up, high caste, high class Jewish person. Finally, we have Paul, who was a Hebraic Jew, born in Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem, taught under Rabbi Gamaliel. He was the Jew of Jews, well-versed in teachings in the law. And this was the leadership here at Antioch. And we see in the leadership that Antioch was very radically diverse, and one could assume that the church itself was radically diverse. As a matter of fact, its diversity is what led, first of all, Barnabas to even show up. Because the church in Jerusalem, which was all Jewish, found out that they're preaching to non-Jews, and they're getting saved. And so they're like, what is going on? Let's go check it out. So this is a radically diverse group, people from all over the world in these cities, but religions, what would happen is in these cities, um, in, under the Roman Empire, people from all over the world would be traveling around. There would be people from all over the world in Antioch. But what would happen is there might be people from all over the world in that city, but they would live in their own little clusters. They would go to their own little churches. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Can I say that again? Does that sound familiar to you at all? You've heard the quote made famous by Martin Luther King that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. We see the way schools and neighborhoods in America are divided and segregated. However, being a church community that is diverse shows something different to this culture and age. It shows a picture of heaven. It shows the power of the gospel. Guys, I want you to hear, hear this. The church in Antioch is so incredible that it had a shared common experience. It had a shared common trauma. It had a shared common mission. But the second element that made it so awesome is that it was radically diverse. And in this diversity, it showed a picture of heaven. We often hear people talk about Revelation 5, Revelation 7, where there's people of every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered together in worship. And if that's what heaven looks like, why does most churches in America where its diversity exists in our cities not look like that? We are intentional here at Waypoint to live intentionally in, as a diverse community. And we do it only by the gospel and for the gospel. We live intentionally diverse communities, only by the gospel and for the gospel. Can I tell you, though, guys, it's not easy, is it? Right? It is not easy to live in diverse communities because, honestly, even if it's like something as simple as living diverse, like, age-wise, right? Or even living diverse ethnically, socially, socioeconomically, culturally, racially. It's not easy to live in diverse communities. Because honestly, our natural tendency in life is to do what is comfortable and to do what is easy. That is our natural tendency. We want to live comfortably. We want to do what is easy. And the easy thing is when people think like me, have a shared common experience as me, it's easier to get along with them. Right? Let's just 
reality, isn't it? Or if they're in the same stage of life as me, if you, example, if you all have like a four-year-old and a two-year-old like me, there's more likely you're gonna see me more often. We probably go to the same things, right? We'll probably, you know, eat at the same restaurants where kids eat free. And, you know, where, where they don't mind when kids are screaming and throwing food around. There's a reality to this. I, don't get me wrong, I understand the reality that it's easier to live where it's comfortable and what's, what you're used to and what's easier to do. But can I tell you something? It's God's never called us to the easy life. Can I say that again? God's never called us to live an easy life. He's called us to live a life that shows the kingdom of God and then brings the kingdom of God forth on earth. And that's never been an easy life. The church is never advanced by Christians living easy lives. It's advanced by Christians living sacrificial lives. So people, our intentional diversity takes sacrifice. It takes humility. It takes us humbly walking alongside people that you don't know that you're confused or you don't know if you're ignorant, you don't know how to ask questions, you don't know what it's like. It takes you um, struggling through language and cultural barriers. It takes you living, going, and doing things differently than you would normally do but it's worth it. I love this in Antioch. They sent out diverse leaders who were trained and experienced with sharing the gospel to all types of people, and it took a multicultural church to, meet, to reach a multicultural world. Antioch was a church-sending center. It was a church-planting center of the age. This multicultural church was the exact thing that God needed and used to reach the nations. And honestly, it's because of a church like Antioch that we have a gospel, uh, we have a message, we have uh, a faith that is not just for Jewish people. Do you hear me? That's for all of us. Do you get that? Will you live intentionally in your diverse communities even if it means driving further, even if it means uh, confusion, even if it means embarrassment, even if it means sacrifice, so we can show the world a picture of heaven and the power of the gospel. Can I get an amen to that? Thank you. The third element in this community was that it was a community of teaching and discipleship. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Do you guys want to hear something crazy that happened here? I don't want you to miss this. Barnabas saw what God was doing here in, in Antioch and went and got Saul. He got Saul because he knew Saul was called to share the gospel with the Gentiles or the, the non-Jewish people. So Saul said yes and went with Barnabas to Antioch. Well, guys, do you remember what started this church in Antioch to begin with? Anybody remember? It was persecution, right? Persecution from after the death of Stephen. They were so afraid of their lives. Well, who were they afraid of? They were afraid of Saul. Do you hear this? Isn't this incredible? Well, Saul was leading this persecution. He was the one saying, yeah, let's kill the followers of the way. He was the one that was championing. He was the teacher that was, everybody was following, laying their robes at. He was the one that was saying, kill them, kill them all. And he was the source of the persecution. But here Saul is, 13 years later, teaching the very same people who fled from him. How incredible is God? Do you hear that? Do you see that? Isn't that so cool? I am, yes, I admit it, I'm a Bible nerd. That stuff is like cool to me. 
13 years later, the very man who was the one source of persecution, the very person that led to the church being scattered, the very man who was saying, you know, I'm going to kill all the followers away because it's, it's, it's messing up this pure religion. 13 years later, he's there now teaching them from the Bible, teaching them the word. And what's even cooler is that they accepted it right? I mean, Paul being changed, that's, that's a cool thing. That's individual. Saul got changed to Paul, and he experienced God. But the people, they're like, they didn't experience Paul's change, Saul's change. They're like, who's coming? Who are you bringing, Barney? You're gonna bring Saul? That's what I call him. You're bringing Saul? Are you, are you sure you want to bring that guy? Because I don't know if you know this, but he, he, he tried to kill us. And you want him to teach us? Only people who have been changed by the grace of God can accept that kind of change in another person. Do you hear that? Only people who have understood and seen the radical transformation that the gospel can do can accept that kind of radical transformation in other people. These are people who have experienced a radical transformation themselves and they can accept Saul to come and teach them. This community was one where it wasn't just the excitement of adding new people. That was a huge part of their purpose. They were adding new people every day. Guys, before I kind of move on from this, that was part of our purpose in element of chapter one, or the first element, I mean. We need to be adding people to our group every day. We need to be adding people who look like Jesus to our numbers. We need to be sharing the gospel. Guys, we need to be out there evangelizing. I'm just going to be honest with you. That was the purpose of the church, is to make disciples of Jesus. And that's what they were doing. They were sharing the word. But not only are they called to share the word, they were involved in deep teaching and discipleship. They were committing to teaching the word so much that they brought in an expert who once tried to kill them. They wanted so much to go deeper into the things of God, so much to go deeper into the word of God, that they were like, okay, I know he tried to kill us earlier, but okay, well, I just, I got to know more about the word so badly. They were a culture, they were a place that wanted deep teaching. Guys, can I tell you that our community here, what we want so desperately is we want to be people of deep teaching and discipleship. We want you to be so passionately in love with the word. We want you to be so um, literate. We want you to dive and into the word of God. Not because we want you to be academic intellectuals to show how smart you are to walk around with your nose in there saying, well, I know everything there is to know about the Bible. I want you to know the word so passionately because the word transforms us. The word is given to us by the Holy Spirit, or uh, given to us and through the Holy Spirit transforms us and does a work in us. But here's the work that it does. It makes you more like Jesus. I want you to be people of word of teaching and discipleship because ultimately our call is for all of us to, in our community to make each other more like Jesus. Ultimately what happens in our community as we gather together, as we proclaim the word, as we worship, as we learn, as we dive into scripture in our small groups together, ultimately what needs to be happening is um, I need to be making James more like Jesus and James needs to be making me more like Jesus. What needs to be happening is Casey needs to look more like Jesus through our study of the word and through the proclamation of the word. And Casey needs to be helping Gina look more like Jesus. And Jesus wants to be helping Nathan look more like Jesus. Do you see how this works? We're supposed to be, in this community, people who disciple and teach each other because our ultimate job, Jesus gave it, he gave us our mission statement. He says, go and make disciples. And our theology says this, what we teach here, our theology says this, that we're not a group of people that's, you know, we, we don't believe that the world is, um, we're on a sinking ship and get as many people in the lifeboat as possible. That's not the calling for us. 
The calling is to be people who look and live like Jesus so that when we do that, when his image of the image of God advances on this earth, so does God's kingdom advance. And his rule and reign advances. And that's how the redeeming work of God happens when he makes all things new. By making disciples, image bearers of Jesus. So people at Waypoint, we want to be people who are passionate about the word of teaching and discipleship. The fourth element of this community is that it was a sharing and compassionate community. Verses 27 on, it says, Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, setting it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the church in Antioch got word that the famine was coming. Mind you, it wasn't the famine was here yet, just that it was coming. So what did they do? They collected funds and resources and sent it to the believers in Judea. They sent it through Barnabas and Saul. And why did they do this? Well, I love how in verse 29 it says this, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They did this because they really believed that these fellow believers were their brothers. I grew up in the church in the South, like I said before, so I know how people in the church like to call each other brother. Anybody grew up in a church like that? No? Am I the only one? Yeah, yeah. They often walk in, Brother Lawrence, Brother Danny, and that was like the thing. That's, everybody was brother, you know, that was what they call each other. But in reality, so often, they might call each other that, but they don't often live like family. At least not family the way I've experienced or desire family to be. See, I, I don't have a brother, so I don't know what it's like to have a brother, but I do have a sister. I know what it's like to be a brother. So I am a brother, but I'm, I don't have a brother. Does that make sense? So I know what it's like to be a brother. I don't know why I like saying brother a lot. I love my sister so much. She's pretty awesome, and I would give her anything, I would do anything for her. Me and my sister have a really great relationship. But to be honest with you, when we were younger, um, I was not a very good brother, just to put it lightly. I was a jerk. Honestly. Um, I honestly was annoyed by her presence. She was like two and a half, three years younger than me. And I was that brother who was like, seriously, stop following me around. And then I, this is why I honestly did this. I would put holes in her bicycle tires so she couldn't follow me. Once again, I was not a good brother. I admitted my sin. Guys, this is church. I should be able to be vulnerable with my sin with you guys, not being judged. <laughs> It's true. I did. I was that kind of brother. I was a jerk. I was annoyed by my little sister following me around. I was a bad brother. But you know what? As much as she might have annoyed me, if my and we were once again the only like often minority kids in school in the area, she'd come home and be like, "Hey, Lawrence, this this, this guy's picking on me," and I'd be like, "What? Somebody's picking on my little sister? Only I can do that." So I was like. <laughs> I would get so angry and I'd run to the bus stop and the kid would take one look at me and think, run away because he's like, there's a large Asian man chasing me. <laughs> and I've seen enough kung fu movies. He might not know anything, but I've never seen a large Asian guy. So no, no, no. No, I mean, that was honestly the reality for me was that as much as she might have annoyed me, man, I would always protect her, look out for her and love her. And the reality is, here's what we're called to be. We're called to be family in this place. Because here's the thing. What do you learn growing up in family is you say, oh, there's no deeper bond than blood. Right? That's what people say, isn't there? There's nothing deeper. There's no more connecting bond than blood. Can I tell you that's a true statement? But the wrong blood. 
Can I say that again? True statement, but the wrong blood. The bond that needs to connect us even more so than the blood of family is the blood of Jesus. I know that's hard. It's hard for me even to hear that, to be honest with you, because for me, growing up, my family had this mentality of it's us against the world, right? That was the way my family grew up. It was us against the world. You know, we're the, we're the, we got to protect ourselves and, you know, we're, we're, we're the ones, only ones who look out for each other, we'll protect ourselves. It's us against the world mentality. But even deeper than that cultural and blood bond that my family and I have, what's deeper is the blonde of spiritual family that Jesus has called us to in our local church bodies. Do you hear that? I thank God that my, my parents and my sister know Jesus and that we can have that connected bond as well. But there is something so powerful. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, when his disciples came up to him and said, hey, your family's here. He's like, no, you guys are my family. He's not diminishing his, actually, his actual family there. He's making a point. He's saying the deeper bond is the blood of Jesus for all of us. You see, a family, as I see it, loves, protects, and looks out for one another. There's a connecting bond, and some of you guys might have never experienced family like that, and I'm sorry if you haven't. But as I understand family, this is what a family does. It connects, they, they bond, they love, they protect. They forgive quickly. They learn to live and work alongside each other. They learn to share. The people at Antioch, guys, they were family. People, we are here called to family. There's a reason why our new member class, our membership process here at Waypoint Church, we call it covenant family process. We believe that we're united through blood to one another, the powerful saving blood of Jesus, and this calls us to live and share compassionately. You know, can I say this? In my family, as, as if me and my sister got into a fight, it wasn't like, oh, I'll see you later. We were still family. You know, we'll, we'll have to get over it eventually. You know, my parents would make us just like write down how much we love each other on a piece of paper 50 million times until we finally said, fine, I love her, gosh. We're still family here, guys, can I tell you this? This is truth, you're, especially as we're diverse people coming together, sinful people coming together, you're gonna have issues with each other. If you haven't yet, that means you haven't really hung out with each other that much. <laughs> it's just true, you're gonna have issues with me. You can have issues with each other because we're family. And as we live together, here's what happens. Friction happens because if you're around somebody close enough and you can bump each other, if you're, if you're around people enough, friction happens because you bump into each other, you rub against each other, and you rub each other wrong. But the alternative is to be separate and not have anybody at all. So as we come together as covenant family, as we come together in community to commit to one another, that's what's going to happen. But here's what family does. It forgives quickly. Because the mission of that family is so much bigger than their own petty grievances. And the blood that brings them together does not let them separate. Do you hear me? You guys with me? Does that make sense to all of you guys? Today, we, we're so blessed at Waypoint. Um, I think we have something like 22 adults doing our new member class this Sunday, this after church today. And that is just so awesome. 22 people who are, who are going to go through our class and at the end of it, hope prayerfully commit to this idea of saying, I'm making a covenant to join in this family together. I love That's what we call it. We call it covenant family because covenant family for us means a covenant means it's a commitment. It's a promise that I'm willfully making to join in in this family and this group together to say, we're going to do mission together. We're going to do life together. We're going to do community together. We're family here. 
And that calls us to share and live compassionately. That calls us to give sacrificially, just like you would give to a family member in need. Guys, the church at Antioch gave freely to their brothers. We need to give freely to our brothers who are in need. We need to be a compassionate, giving church. And one of the things that marks us as a community needs to be the fact that we are compassionate and giving and willing to live sacrificially. Do you hear that? The fifth element of this community was that it was a worshiping and praying community. Chapter 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church at Antioch took seriously the call to pray and to worship together. Our gathering together for corporate worship is a fundamental part of the community together. Hear me very well. Christianity knows nothing of a solitary religion. It was always meant to live communally. It always meant to live covenantally with a family and a group of people together. Edmund Clowney has this quote, reverent corporate worship is not optional for the church of God. It is not a form of group behavior to be accepted just because of its long tradition or its acceptability in many cultures, i.e. this is not something we do because we're supposed to in our Sunday routine. Rather, corporate worship brings to expression the very being of the church. It manifests on earth the reality of the heavenly assembly. Our corporate gathering together gives people a glimpse of heaven. It also gives us that glimpse as well. And so you can see that the church in Antioch was a seriously committed church to gathering together to worship and prayer. And so for us, we don't take lightly the fact that God's called us to come to this place on Sunday morning to say, let's gather together as a family to worship. Who here has family dinners? Do you guys still have family dinners, anybody? Family dinner time? I love family dinner time. The sad thing is my parents, um, when I was young, wouldn't get home from work till about 8, 45, 9 o'clock. So we didn't have family dinner time because that was pretty late to eat dinner for me and my sister. But what we did is every night when they got home, there was this tradition in, in our household is we had to actually, and we got, we got yelled at and in, in trouble a lot if we didn't do this, is we had to meet our parents at the door every, time, every night they came home and we had to bow and say, glad you're home. And then we had to go to, we'd go and we'd sit at the table and we'd talk. We didn't have family dinner time because it was, Dinner, it was nine something at night, so, you know, it was a late dinner. But we would get together and we'd sit at the table. And that's when we'd find out what happened that day, because I didn't see my parents, because, you know, they left for work before I went to school and they'd get home till nine. So I didn't see my parents all day, and, and my sister didn't see my parents. So they would find out what happened that day, what's going on, and what's, what's our plan? What are we, what are we, what, what's our family strategy? What are we doing? And that was so vital for us as a family to get together, because it was so easy, as, especially as I got older to just not be connected as a family. As I was busy doing so many other things, that was the, our necessary time. Guys, can I tell you this? Our Sunday gathering is necessary. Do you hear me? Our Sunday gathering, guys, I want you to hear this, and this is not a legalistic me saying, you better be at church on Sunday morning or you're, you're a heathen. I'm not saying that. I am saying this. Our Sunday morning gathering of corporate worship is what the church, one of the main purposes of the church. It gives a glimpse of heaven, but it's also our family meeting time. Where we come together and say, oh, my family. When we come together and we give a big hug. I had a, a friend of mine has every Sunday, their family gathers, all the in-laws, all the kids. Every Sunday they have a, a family dinner. There's a show, I can't remember what the name of the show was, on TV. And it was like a cop show or something. But every Sunday they would have dinner together. 
And uh, I remember Gina and I watching that, be like, oh, that would be so cool one day if we have a bunch of kids and they all have their other kids and they all have family and dinner time and all this kind of stuff. I'll be honest with you guys, I envision myself as like a patriarch grandfather, you know? And I want all my kids to be like, there with all the little grandkids running around. That's just how I envision myself, I'm just saying. I think that'd be so cool. This is our family gathering time. Do you get that? When we come together on Sunday mornings, we show a glimpse of heaven, yes, but we also get to come together as a family and celebrate the family that God's given us and say together, God's called us to something huge. It empowers you so that the rest of the week you're out there sharing the gospel, studying the word and becoming more like Jesus. Do you get that? It's also a radically praying church. We believe that prayer is God's appointed means. This is what we say at Waypoint Church. Prayer is God's appointed means of enacting his will. So we need to be praying people because we want to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be a praying people because we want to see the nations know. We need to be a praying people because our lost neighbor, our lost friend, our lost coworker needs to hear and know the gospel. So we need to be a praying church. And that's what the Church of Antioch was. Next week, Pastor Danny is going to dive into this idea of prayer a lot more. So I'm not going to go much more into it today. But we desire to seriously be a praying church. And that was the fifth element of Church of Antioch. They were a praying church, which leads directly to the sixth element of the community, is that it was a sending community. Because it was a praying church, it was a sending church. Hear that. It goes hand in hand. Because it was a praying church, they heard the Spirit speak. And when the Spirit said, go and send Saul and Barnabas for the work which I have called them. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church in Antioch heard clearly the call of the Holy Spirit to reach others with the hope that they had. As a sending church, get this, these are three things as a sending church they did. One, as a sending church, they listened to the call of the Spirit. As a sending church, they listened. They actually said, God, will you speak? Holy Spirit, will you speak? Tell us what a mission is specifically. We know what the mission is generally. Now give us specific instructions on our mission, how to accomplish it. And two, as a sending church, they sent their best. Who did they send? They sent Saul and Barney, a son of encouragement, you know, the, the teacher. The one who was called to teach the Gentiles. So there is, you know, I mean, they could have easily been like, please don't go, Saul. Please don't go, Barney. We need you here. We love your encouragement. We love your teaching. But they said, no, no, we're going to keep, we're, we're going to send you off. I joke about it often um, at Waypoint Church, but at, um, when we did our launch team about four years ago, four and a half years ago, one of the things I said at the launch team is that I honestly expect 50% of you guys not to be here. I think, I think it was like five years from now, maybe. I don't know if that's the time. I mean, whatever, I said at some point, I expect you guys not to be here because God might be sending you somewhere else. And we need to be okay with that. Guys, not only do, do we need to be okay with it, we need to be excited about it. Because God sent you, if he's calling you, hear me, Waypoint Church, if there is a tug on your heart, if God is speaking to you, know that you will be sent out of here with absolute love and with absolute support. That's what we saw last week, right? Church, we need to be a church that's willing to go and say, you know, this might be where I've had community for a long time, but God's calling me to start a new community somewhere else. Now, there's a tension that lives in that. You're like, well, Lawrence, you just talked about being community and committing to one another. Now you're saying to go? That doesn't make any sense. There's a tension that exists, yes? 
And those who know me well, when you hear me counsel them, I always talk about this tension, right? And some of you guys might be like, oh, Lawrence, you're talking about tension again. But this idea of so much of the Christian life, we have to live in tension. This idea of, okay, you called me to community, but you also say, I might go. Which is it, Lawrence? Stay here in community or go? I'm going to say, yes, it's both. And the only way you can know the answer to that is the Holy Spirit. See, that's what happens, guys, as you're walking and living your life, um, as you're trying to obey the Bible. There's like, well, the Bible says to do this and to do this. The Bible says live sacrificially. Well, what's the tension of that? Do I give everything away or do I um, enjoy the gifts that my Father has given? What do I do? There's a tension there. And my only answer to you is I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong in that. I'm going to say, what's the Holy Spirit say to you? Because here's the deal. If you don't live in tension, if there's not tension in your life and making decisions, then what need do you have of the Holy Spirit? right? But Jesus himself even said that, hey, it's better that I'm gone because you're going to get the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is going to help you live in tension. Are you guys with me? He didn't add that part about the Holy Spirit. That was me. I said that part. So don't quote saying, oh, Jesus said this. No, I said that. (laughs) Do you hear what I'm saying? Is that we as a church need to be living in this tension of sending people. So you need to be living in this tension of, am I called to go or am I called to stay? But either way, you need to be called. Do you hear me? Am I called to go or am I called to stay? Either way, you need to be called. And the Holy Spirit needs to be the one that lives in that tension with you and helps you make that decision. I love these elements of the church at Antioch because of all these elements of this community at Antioch, God used the church at Antioch in radical, amazing ways to change the face of the earth because of what happened at Antioch, because they had a community that lived like this. Guys, here's what I truly believe. Here at Waypoint, we have the opportunity, the amazing opportunity to live like a community like that. We do. We have all that we need in the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. We have everything we need to live like a community like that, and we can also be used by God to change the face of this world, to change the face of this community. Guys, may we strive to live in these elements. May we commit to being a community like this. Amen? Let's pray.